Friends, it's a joy to be in the Lord's house with you this morning. We are um, kind of in the midst of our Advent season and our Advent series uh, where we, uh, every calendar year around this time, kind of after Thanksgiving and before Christmas, like to, uh, as much as we're able, uh, slow down and kind of see what it's like to anticipate uh, the coming of Jesus, what it would have been like had we been kind of in that time, but also knowing that uh, on this side of the Christmas story, we are actually living between, between the Advents. And so we are ourselves awaiting uh, Christ and his return. And so we like to slow down and take a look at that um, and really look at some of the different characters in the Christmas story. Uh, and this morning, we're gonna take a look at uh, the Virgin Mary. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter one. We're gonna start at verse 26 and read down to verse 38. Uh, So let us give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word from the gospel of Luke chapter one. This is the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask, or I ask, I should say, um, that you would break through um, the familiarity with a story like this. Um, Lord, maybe even a little bit of the cynicism of a story like this. A story that uh, is so strange um, and yet so crucial. Um, Something that you have put into motion from before the foundation of the earth. Uh, Lord, to see a promise coming true right before us. Uh, Lord, is um, wildly encouraging and and also terrifying. Uh, So Jesus, would you calm my own heart, uh, calm my own fears? Uh, Would you calm the hearts of my friends here? Uh, Would you open us uh, to what you might have for us this morning? Would you allow your spirit um, to overcome us? uh, That we would... Uh, have an encounter with you uh, that would cause us to leave here rejoicing uh, because of all the great things you have done. Uh, so in your name we do pray. Amen. Well, friends, it is, uh, it is the Advent season. And as we look at this story with uh, the Virgin Mary, we're going to see two points really to look at this morning. We're going to see the paradox of Mary and then the promise to Mary. So if we look back at verse 26, um, starting with the paradox, uh, it's Advent. This is the season as uh, theologian Chad Bird says, of the church's flat tire, uh, meaning that we are moving slowly, slowly, slowly uh, to the Christmas story, to the, the, uh, the birth of Jesus, 
uh, and are living with great anticipation of what that, is mean, what that means. So historically, the church has slowed way down uh, to contemplate the birth of our Savior. Um, it's also, it also comes in the midst when your personal life is kind of ramping up. You got, I don't know, I'm assuming this is true for everyone. Uh, you have Christmas parties you're invited to? If you didn't, I'm sorry. Um, you, have thing, like you have all these obligations that you feel like you have in this season. Um, you're planning your travel back home. You're having folks come to visit you. There's all this anxiety uh, and expectation um, and obligation that you feel. And at the same time, the Lord is asking us to kind of slow down uh, and really focus on uh, what it would have been like uh, to anticipate the coming of the Lord for the first time and then what it'll be like uh, as we await his second coming. And so this is story, this story with Mary, this annunciation as it's called, the angel comes and makes this announcement to Mary of what's about to happen is really the point toward which all the tributaries of the Old Testament flow into this mighty Mississippi of gospel promise that the Messiah who has come to save the people from their sins is here. Now up until this point, God has been silent. It's called the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New. 400 years of absolute silence. God hasn't made a peep. There are no prophets that are speaking on behalf of God. It's been wildly silent. And Israel, God's great chosen nation, God's chosen people, this three theocratic nation whose claim to fame was their relationship with Yahweh. They were the nation that had this monotheistic God. They didn't have a, a, a vast buffet of other gods like the other nations had. They made this claim that their God was the God and that he actually spoke to them. But for 400 years, for 10 generations, it's been silent. All the wailing, all the crying, all the captivity. The last chapter of the Hebrew Bible as it is laid out ends with the book of Chronicles. And the book of Chronicles ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the Bible, even as they know it, up until this point, it just ends and, and Jerusalem is destroyed and then it ends. So there's all this anticipation of where is this Messiah that was promised to us all the way back in Genesis. And then all of a sudden, as the New Testament, as we know it, uh, gets moving, some wild stuff starts to happen. It starts out with two wild accounts of two wildly impossible pregnancies. This continues what we call in scripture, the barren woman motif that runs through all of scripture. And as Elliot said last week, that when scripture mentions someone is barren, then somebody's about to get pregnant. That if it is mentions that a woman is barren, she's about to get pregnant. And now Elizabeth, who is beyond childbearing years, she has become pregnant. She was the wife of Zachariah. She's Mary's cousin. And we can draw that connection there because she was married. And we know how babies are born, hopefully. And so we know that that one, that one can kind of make sense a little bit. But when this story shows up and Luke is telling us that Gabriel shows up to Mary and she's a virgin and the angel is saying to her, hey, you're gonna have a baby. There's no precedent for that. We haven't seen that. That will never make sense. 
So who is Mary and why is she important? Why does Gabriel show up to her? If we look at verse 26, God's great messenger is showing up to Mary. This is already paradoxical. That a messenger of, of God would come, first of all, and speak, but that he would speak to a woman. So it's already for a Jewish reader, this is already gonna cause them to pay a lot of attention or get super cynical. And not only does he come to speak to a female, she's not married and she doesn't have kids and she's a Nazarene and she's betrothed to this blue collar guy named Joseph. So there is nothing about her that we would look at and say, yeah, that makes sense. There's nothing that would have made the reader like perk up. They would have looked at this and been like, really? Because the Messiah, he's supposed to be mighty and bold. When he comes, he's gonna, he's gonna come and make heads roll. He's gonna come with power. He's gonna come with a sword. He's not gonna come, he's not gonna come to some unwed teenager in a no-name town who's married to a carpenter. That wouldn't, that wouldn't check out. This would be like saying, hey, the answer to everything you're looking for all the questions you have, all the problems you feel, all the poverty that you have, all the questions about how do I save my marriage? How do I raise my kids? How can I break this generational curse? How do I stamp out addiction? How is, is, ju how is justice gonna be meted out? Someone will come to you and say, hey, the guy who can fix all that has just been born and he's at a truck stop down in Murfreesboro. That's where you'll find him. And not even Bucky's, not even a good truck stop. <laughs> He's gonna be at a truck stop with bars on the windows that has dirty bathrooms and doesn't sell beef jerky. That's what that would have been like for them. So this angel comes to Mary and her initial response is great. Gabriel greets her and tells her, hey Mary, God's found favor with you. And Luke tells us that she's like, she's a little troubled because she's wondering what kind of greeting is this? If you drive a pickup truck, you know, you know this, that when someone comes to you and they're like, hey, do you saw that truck? They're about to ask you to move a couch. So when this, when this angel shows up to Mary and they're like, hey, Mary, God's found favor with you. He's about to ask her to do something. And so Mary is listening. She perks her ears up. She's like, what kind of greeting is this? Gabriel tells her, hey, don't fear. The Lord has found favor with you and the Lord has chosen you and the Lord has a mission for you. This plan was hatched, Mary, from before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Before a human ever took a breath, God has desired to dwell with his people. Immortal, invisible, God only wise that we sing about God the Son, the second member of the Godhead, the one who is all powerful, the one who is omnipotent, Mary is gonna become the most vulnerable thing you can think about. He's gonna become a baby. He's gonna become actually a single cell. And he's gonna grow inside of you. This Jesus who knows no limits, this God who knows no boundaries, is gonna to submit to the boundaries of your womb. This immense God who feels heaven is, is going to be small enough to grow inside of you and you're gonna give birth to him. And I want you to call him Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. 
because he's gonna save the people from their sins. Because the guy that you're about to marry, Joseph, he's actually royalty. He's from David's line. And Jesus will be connected to you because he will be the one that I promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter seven would be here. Back in 2 Samuel chapter seven, there's this promise made to David where David is actually trying to build a temple for God and God tells him, hey, you're not gonna build me a temple. You're not gonna build me a house. I'm actually gonna build a house for you. David, I'm gonna tell you that through your lineage and through your line, there's gonna come one who will continue the kingdom and will reign forever. He will continue the house of Joseph. All of this, all of this great redemptive historical story is bound up in what Gabriel is saying to Mary here. He's saying to Mary, the baby that's gonna to come to you is the promise that was made to Eve back in the garden. That there would be one who would stomp out the head of Satan. He's the promise made to Abraham in the land of Ur. He's the promise made to Abraham on the mountain. He's the promise made to Moses in Egypt. The promise made to Joshua as he entered the promised land. The promise made to David on the throne. Mary, all of that is gonna come to fruition through you. Forever your name will be known. Mary, God wants you to be the one to do this because he has found favor with you. Which is a lot. And Mary, in her own moment of doubt, she asked Gabriel, how, like, how will this happen? Gabriel, I'm a virgin. How, how is this going to be? So when Zechariah asked this question a couple weeks ago, whenever that was, the angel muted him for a long time. But for Mary, it was a little different because Mary's question was one of curiosity. Mary wasn't arrogant like Zachariah was. Mary was curious, she was inquisitive. Now she wanted to know for sure, but she didn't act like she already knew the answer. Mary is preaching a sermon for us here and Luke is giving us a kingdom principle that humility is the ground in which the seed of the gospel grows. Mary is the portrait of humility. She's an unwed teenage mother, betrothed to a guy named Joseph who's a carpenter, who lives in a town that none of us would wanna live in. And God comes to her and he says, I'm gonna choose you to carry my son. Humility. St. Augustine said that if you ask him what are the essentials to Christianity, what are the essentials to following Jesus, he said he will respond, first, I would say it is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Gabriel came to Mary, the portrait of humility as we see in the scriptures, and says to her, Jesus is gonna come to you. Jesus is gonna be born through you. And Jesus does this because Jesus is humble. Jesus is humility. We're told all over scripture how he dwells in humility, how he laid aside his riches. And he's showing us not only is he, is he humility, not only is Mary humility, 
But in order to dwell with Jesus, we will need humility. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, he didn't seek a platform, he didn't seek office, he didn't seek the crown. When they tried to make him a king, he ran away from the people. When he told his friends he was gonna die, Peter said, we won't let that happen. And Jesus called him the devil. This great paradox of Jesus, this paradox of Mary, the paradox of the Christian story is that, Christ, that, that Christmas, is, Christmas is for losers. Christmas is for the humble. Christmas is for the weary. Christmas is for the messed up. It's for the broken. Pastor Sam Alberry says, if your life is not Instagrammable, then Christmas is for you. This is why Mary's call is such a big deal. She didn't receive this call and then go start a blog. She didn't receive this call and then do a speaking tour. She went and saw her cousin. If you consider the Christmas story itself, how the proud and the haughty like Herod are never gonna accept this. The proud are never gonna believe it. It's not that it doesn't make sense. That's a little bit of a smokescreen. It's not even about how it's impossible for a virgin to get pregnant. That's also a smokescreen. The reason the proud don't wanna believe this is because they don't wanna worship a God that they could see as weak. This is what a weak God would do. We want power. The Messiah would never come this way. The opposition to Christianity, the opposition to Christmas is never truly intellectual. It's always prideful. That was the case for the Jews. This isn't how the Messiah would come. This isn't how the king is supposed to be here. We want someone who's gonna kick butt. We want somebody who's gonna take names. The paradox here is palpable because we just finished Revelation. We live on this side of Christmas we know that Jesus is all those powerful things that folks say. He just delays it. What we see from the Christmas story is that God works on his own schedule. God moves at his own place, pace. God moves in his own place. He's not anxious. He moves however he chooses to move. Mary could have made it known to the masses that she was carrying the son of God. She could have shouted it from the mountaintops she could have gone on the radio, the radio. What's that old man? Podcast. She could have gone on a podcast. She could have made it known to everyone that she was carrying the son of God. But here's the thing. They wouldn't have believed her because she was a she. They wouldn't have believed her. She was a pariah. She was unwed. She didn't have kids. She would have been a burden. You claim that you're a virgin, but somehow you're pregnant. They wouldn't have believed it. And then Jesus comes in and he changes all that. But even Jesus encountered this when he was calling his disciples and Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth when he heard that that's where Jesus was born? And it's into this sexist, xenophobic world that Jesus chose to break in. And it's in our sexist, xenophobic hearts that Jesus chooses to dwell. That if we are to believe the Christmas story and to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, 
We don't lay aside our logic. We lay aside our pride. Humility is what we have to grasp if we're ever to get, if we're ever to get Jesus. Like Mary, humility is the, is the garden in which the gospel chooses to grow. So we lay aside our logic, we, we rather keep our logic, we lay aside our pride, and then we look for the promise. Because there's always a seal in scripture when we're given some sort of sign. Let's bring us to our last point, the promise. If we look at verse 35, Mary asks, how will this be? How is this gonna be, Gabriel? How, how am I gonna get pregnant? Gabriel tells her that the Holy Spirit is gonna work. The Holy Spirit is gonna come over you the Holy Spirit is going to overtake you. This is done, Gabriel says, or Luke rather tells us, to maintain Christ's purity so that he, uh, we can be assured that he is the son of God. So Mary, all these things are going to happen. Holy Spirit's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to overcome you and you're going to get pregnant. He's going to overcome you and you're going to get morning sickness. Holy Spirit's gonna come in, Mary, and then you're gonna want pickles. The Holy Spirit's gonna come in, Mary, and you're gonna be miserable. You're gonna feel, you're gonna feel the Savior of the world kick inside of you. You're gonna feel him move. You're gonna feel him toss around. You about to go down? Maybe. We might have to take a vote on a new pastor here in a second. Gabriel tells her, if you need any more confirmation of this, go and see your cousin Elizabeth because six months ago, she became pregnant. The one who was barren, the one who could never have a kid, she's pregnant too. And these two impossible pregnant women are gonna be in the same room. Gabriel tells her, Mary, there's nothing that is impossible with God. When it appears that this is never going to happen. He tells her, there's nothing that is impossible with God. There's one thing that God doesn't do. There are a few things God doesn't do. One of them is that he doesn't break his promises. Samaria, so a long, long time ago, God made a promise that there was a Messiah, a God man who was gonna come and walk the earth and you're gonna be the one that's going to carry him. God is going to make a way when there seems to be no way. And here's the problem with that. A verse like that, that God can do the impossible when you've had your own struggles and your own sadness and your own heartache and your own heartbreak, someone's probably come to you and used that verse and said, it's okay. God can do the impossible. It's true, but it's not necessarily helpful. God can do the impossible. He certainly can. He also sometimes chooses not to. That if nothing is impossible with God, it means it's that, that sometimes he's not gonna do it. In this case, however, for Mary and for her assurance, he moved. That was Mary's story. It wasn't because of Mary's great faith. 
It wasn't because she believed hard enough. It wasn't because she prayed hard enough. It wasn't because she desired hard enough. It wasn't because she knew the right people or had the right pedigree. It wasn't because she was a part of purity culture. God made this promise to her. God moved into this impossibility because God chose to do so. It was his will for her. That's the other hard thing about Christmas. It's the hard thing about living on this side of the story It's the hard part about living between the advents is that just like in that intertestamental intertestamental period of the 400 years of God's silence, it can also feel like that for us. This is the other hard thing about the Christmas season. It's this perfect mix of this precious nostalgia and this super deep pain. It can be another bleak reminder that as another year is passing, you didn't get what you really wanted. It can be another reminder that you didn't get what you wanted. The things that you desire, those things that are good and, and great even, they still aren't there. It can be another Christmas that you're single. It's another Christmas with an empty nursery. It's another Christmas that your loved one that you long to be with isn't there. There's gonna be an empty chair at the Christmas table. There's an empty spot under the tree where their presents are supposed to be. And maybe it's not an empty chair or an empty nursery for you. Maybe it's the things that are there. The person who touched you in a way that you were never supposed to be touched. The trauma and the memories of all the horror of growing up. Maybe your Christmas is filled with the kids who have walked away from the faith. Or it's filled with the psychological noise that you're bad at your job or that you're bad at your marriage or that you're bad at being a friend. It's filled with bills that can't be paid. This room is too big for this not to be the case. And what is seemingly impossible is just another reminder that God is silent. We've prayed a thousand times for him to move and he hasn't moved. And friends, I don't know why those things are the way they are. It's so far above my pay grade. I don't know why otherwise healthy people die. I don't know why God is silent when you're praying for what you want. What I do know, however, is this. It's not because he's absent. The silence of God never means the absence of God. That's what we learn from this story. That in that time of 400 years when there wasn't a word spoken from the Lord, it's easy to think that he was asleep at the wheel. But that's the thing about Christmas, that God really did put on a real body and he really came to live with people who really needed him to live amongst them. That if this isn't true, Tim Keller says, we will be crushed under the weight of another moral teaching of Christmas. That if this isn't true, that Christmas is for the loser, that Christmas is for the weary and the tired and the beaten down, if that's not true, then it's just another moral teaching that we can't live up to. Think about the messages that we're told. Be sacrificial, be humble, be kind. 
Make sure you have enough room in your inn for Jesus to come. To be better, to do better. That won't get us any closer to Jesus than the day before he was born. But because it's real, it can mean something life-altering and life-shattering for us. It means the real God really does have a real interest in you. It can mean this, that when you have nothing to offer, or I would say because you have nothing to offer, God still looks at us and says, I have taken favor with you. Now we're not gonna carry his son that somebody has for us. But what we can find is that we have a God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We can know a God who knows what it's like to be left alone. We can know a God who loved something enough that he would die for it. We can know a God who doesn't lie to you. We can know a God who isn't anxious. We can know a God who knows why all the bad things have happened. And we can know a God who has promised to make all the bad things go away. That in this Christmas story, we can know that, a God, that we have a God whose heart breaks over injustice. So we have a God who cares about the immigrants. We have a God who cares about the poor. And we have a God who cares for us. And he doesn't care for, us that we, uh, for the us that we want him to see. He cares for the us that actually is. So when Gabriel comes to Mary and he tells her all these things about Jesus in such a precise and succinct way, the implications of what this meant for all of God's people are insane. Mary, you're gonna give birth to Jesus and he's gonna stand in the stead of ruined sinners. And that because all of this is true, we can, like Mary, say, behold, let it be as you said. That we can, with humility and trust, say, let it be according to your word. That we can actually look at humility as something to be grasped instead of demanding power and demanding our own definition of freedom. That we can submit to what Jesus says and who Jesus is. And the Christmas story is showing us that Christmas is also costly. That to answer this call of God on Mary's life was going to cost her greatly. I've got to witness two pregnancies with my wife and hopefully no more. And it looked terrible. I didn't want to tell her I knew how she felt. I made the mistake once. Yeah, I, I get that. Guys, you don't get it. Mary endured all of that. She endured the, un the uncomfortableness. She endured the sleeplessness, the sickness. She gave birth. That's a train wreck. She did all of these things. And not only is it just in that moment, but Mary watched her son die naked in front of her. Mary's own kids, Christ's siblings, didn't believe he was Jesus. They're like, you're not Jesus, you're a brother. What are you talking about? Mary endured all of this. Mary was the same one who went to that tomb on Easter morning to find it empty. And when she went back to tell a bunch of men that the tomb was empty, 
They didn't believe her. Mary went through all of this. And this isn't a story that we are told for God to tell us, hey, you need to be like Mary. Because you can't, because you're not her. So that can't be what this is about. But what if it's about this? That Jesus seems to like and Jesus seems to live with, with the unlikely people in the unlikely places. That maybe Jesus lives with sinners because sinners are all that there are. That he calls the unlikely because the ones who we think would be likely to be called wouldn't answer. That he calls the unlikely because the unlikely are all that will answer. And then this Advent season when it's dark at 4.30 and it's even darker in our hearts when this holy, lonesome echo, as Andrew Peterson says, of the silence of God is ringing out and the silence is all that we hear, that maybe we can be comforted to know that his silence never means his absence. Then that 400 years that he was quiet it's easy to think he was gone. And there's times in our own lives when it feels as if he's silent. Maybe not even feels as if he is, he is. That it never means that he's absent from us. There was one time that he was. There was a time when God was silent. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying to God to let this cup pass from him, the cup of wrath. He didn't want to go die. He was sweating drops of blood. He's praying, let this go, let this cup pass from me. And he didn't hear a word. God didn't respond. And Jesus drank that bitter silence all the way to his grave so that we will never have to know what that's like. We'll never have to know what that's like. He was forsaken so that we will never have to know what it's like to be forsaken by God. Hebrews 1 tells us that there were many ways and many times in which God has spoken, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. In those moments when it feels as if God is silent, He's not absent. And he's given us his word. He's given us his son that we can look back and rest in that promise. That we can, with humility, look at our Lord and say, let it be as according to your word. That there is now a God who speaks for you when you can't speak for yourself. When the groans of our prayers don't even make sense, the Holy Spirit can interpret those. God knows what you're saying. Friends, though he may be silent, he is never absent. Let's pray together. Jesus, it is, uh, it is my great hope that when I, walk up, when I walk off the stage that I'll believe this. It's my great hope and my prayer uh, for my friends here that once they walk out these doors that they will believe this. 
that you dwell among the unlikely. You move in ways that we would never think that you move. We live at a pace that is not the same pace at which you live. So Jesus, we're asking you, we're begging you, would you break the pride and the cynicism of our hearts? Would you wash it away? Would you bring humility? Or bring humility that I can believe uh, that you really have found favor with me. And for all my friends here, Lord, I, I would ask that that would be their prayer as well. That Jesus, we could leave here uh, more in love with you. That the things that are demanding our allegiance from the world would wither away. And that we would only seek to live and love and praise you. So Jesus, that's our heart, that's our prayer, that's our, amb that's our ambition. And Lord, in those moments in which we fall, uh, would you continue to pick us up and call us to yourself? I say your name, we do pray, amen.